0: Matthew 19, verses 13 through 15. Follow along with me as I read for us. Matthew writes, Then children were brought to Jesus, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And you're thinking, three verses, this ought to be a short sermon, right? Well, the message is simple, yet it is very, very profound and worthy of our attention. And uh, as we kind of move through this text, if if you're a note taker, uh, then here 's the outline we 're going to notice three movements that reveal jesus love for children, three movements that revealed jesus love for children so So, what are these? Well, first we 're going to begin with a people 's initiative to bless children, a people 's initiative to bless children. Uh, notice in verse 13, the text doesn 't actually say who's bringing the children to Jesus. It's not specific. It's an undefined group. But I think it's safe to say that uh, most of these would have been parents. I mean, it would seem kind of odd if it weren't, right? That people just grabbing other parents' children, uh, you know, that's known as kidnapping today. Uh, But, you know, maybe the crowd is just so big and there's so many people around Jesus that you have parents that are handing their kids to others who are closer to Jesus and maybe would have had easier access to him. We're not sure. In any case, here's what I definitely want us to appreciate about the initiative of these people. First, we have to appreciate how they are definitely showing the right effort, right? I think it's always kind of helpful to try and just put yourself in the shoes of those that are around Jesus. Uh, I, I take it most of you have been to a big sporting event or activity. Maybe you've been to the circus, maybe you've been to a hockey game, right? But of course, there can be a lot of challenges when you are in and among a crowd. And I just have to imagine that uh, as parents are with their children, all of the inconveniences they would have had to overcome. Of course, you've got the inconvenience of noise. You have things you don't want your kids touching. You have people that are pushing up Against each other. And of course, there's always the fear in the back of your mind that you're going to take your eyes off of your child and then a moment later they're just going to be gone in the midst of the crowd, right? It's possible the parents would have experienced some of the same concerns, people all over the place. And frankly, they may have woke up that day wondering if they'd even be able to get to Jesus. At this point, keep in mind that we are approximately at least halfway through the ministry of Jesus. Uh, he is now entering the area of Judea, and there are crowds swarming him. And people are very aware that there is a, a mighty healer. And many are saying of this man that he just might be the Messiah. So everybody is coming to check out Jesus. Everybody wants to be close to him. So I imagine the parents having to figure out some you know, sort of a strategy. You know, how are we going to get close? So this moment, right, there's inconvenience. Uh, There's discomfort, it's fraught with some challenges, some unknowns, but here they are anyways, right? And so they have clearly the right effort. But notice this too, they also have the right hope, don't they? Uh, I mean, these, these people, these parents, they want their children to have a blessed life. And isn't this ultimately what every parent desires for their children? I mean, If you ask any parent what they want for their kids, what are they going to say? They may not say the words blessed, but they'll mention a host of other things. They will say how they want their kids to have a happy life or a purposeful life. Sometimes they'll mention how they want their children to experience positive friendships, perhaps a fulfilling job, a loving family, a faithful spouse, healthy children, these are all things we put in that category of blessed, aren't they? And these parents are no different. They want the ultimate for their children, the best that life has to offer. But lastly, and no doubt most importantly, what else do we notice here? Lastly, we, we notice how these parents are going to the right place. They're going to Jesus, and I want you to think about this because the fact is that it was very common for someone to take their child to a rabbi so that he would pray a blessing over them. And in fact, uh, this would usually happen on a child's first birthday. And that's why we see parents coming to Jesus. So today, we kind of let children stuff their faces with chocolate cake. That's the big event. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Sometimes that goes over really well. And the kid just gorges himself, or it goes how my first son did it, and he takes that first bite, and he kind of leans back and goes, ah, and then he starts crying, right? Well, for them, it wasn't chocolate cake. It was visiting the rabbi, having the rabbi pray over the child. Um, and, and here's the thing. On this day, though, they're not just going to any rabbi, are they? No, they are going to a divine rabbi. And little do they... Know that the one who prays to the Lord is the Lord, and the one who asks for God's blessing happens to be God Himself. Uh, might be odd for us to read this passage and and think about the laying on of hands. We don't know what to do with that. Why do we have someone touching my child? Right, <laughs> but it was a standard practice in the Bible. And uh, the first time we see this is in Genesis 48 when Israel, who was formerly called Jacob, has his two grandchildren brought to him before his death, Ephraim and Manasseh. And then we're told how he stretched out his right hand and he placed it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and then he stretched out his left hand and he put it on the head of Manasseh. And then he blessed Joseph and then he prays a blessing over the kids. So that's the first time we see the laying on of hands. But there are many other occasions in which this takes place. People would sometimes lay their hands on a sacrifice when it was given. Um, Elders, when they were installed as leaders, also had hands laid on them. And so this is just a simple way for someone to physically show their support and solidarity with someone or something. And of course, when you get into the New Testament, we see this practice continue in a myriad of ways. Uh, We see it especially in Jesus' ministry. He is one who reaches out and and touches those whom he is caring for. And Jesus lays his hand on people when he heals them. Uh, In the book of Acts, we see how people receive the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands. And it is, again, done for the ordaining and installing of pastors and elders. So, first, we notice the people's initiative to bless children. Now, I want us to notice, secondly, this, the disciples' interference of the children's blessing, the disciples' interference of the children's blessing. And notice verse 13, we see the disciples rebuked the people. Now, you probably already can comprehend this, but a rebuke is not exactly a gentle or soft word. No, we're talking about a sharp word of disapproval, a firm word of correction. And so I just imagine the disciples saying something like this, like, what are you doing? (laughs) I'm sorry, but we can't have Jesus seeing your child today. He is far too busy for that. I mean, don't you realize that he's got many things to do, far too many people to see, far too many places to be, In fact, we have to get to Jerusalem. That's where we're going. And and we can't be held up by the simple matter of him praying over your child. We need to conserve the Messiah's energy because there's a lot on the agenda. And be honest with me, I mean, how many times have we maybe done the same thing? There's been a child that's wanted time with us. And we thought and said, well, you know, there's just too many things to do. I'm sorry, just don't have time right now. And so they get pushed to the back burner. That happens quite a bit with kids, doesn't it? And sadly, in some instances, when they get pushed to the back burner, they end up staying there because, again, there's just too many urgent matters that need to be taken care of. And friends, that would have been true in Jesus' day and because it would have been a day in which child were to be seen but not heard. Children didn't have rights. Today, we talk about children having rights. They didn't have any rights in Jesus' day. They only had potential. And that's not to say they weren't loved. They were because people rightly viewed children as a blessing from the Lord. They understood that children were a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward, as Psalm 127 says. But the fact was still that until one became an adult, they really didn't have much value in society except perhaps to be used for laborers around the house and in the fields. And clearly the disciples, I think, shared that perspective. Sorry, people. Jesus just doesn't have time for your dirty kids and their runny noses. (laughs) Got a few important matters to attend to. So we see here the disciples' interference of the children's blessing And now, thirdly, we need to notice this. Thirdly, we notice the Savior's insistence on blessing the children. The Savior's insistence on blessing the children. Look at verse 14. But Jesus said, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. Stop disturbing them. Stop preventing them from coming to me. Stop what you're doing, disciples, Jesus says. His statement is emphatic. He says both positively, permit or let the children come, and negatively, do not forbid them to come. He hardly could be more firm in his resolve to welcome children into his presence and bless them. He insists on it. And if you think this was a dispassionate word, you'd be wrong because Mark ten fourteen says this, but when Jesus saw what was happening, he was indignant. So Mark sheds some interesting light on this passage. Jesus was actually angry with the disciples. I want you to just kind of put that in your thoughts. What a thought that God can both love us and be upset with us all at the same time. How many times do we forget that? How many times do we connect our performance with what God thinks about us? Oh, I messed up this week. Oh, I sinned against the Lord. He doesn't want anything to do with me. No, that's not the picture of the gospel. Your identity never changes even when your behavior dishonors the Lord. And thankfully, by his grace, he allows us to know when our behavior is not pleasing him by bringing conviction of sin into our lives. That is the rebuke of love that he provides to us. But it's all because we are his children that he rebukes us, right? Does not God discipline those whom he loves as a father disciplines a child. And so Jesus here, he's upset, but he's also, he's, he's gracious, he's patient, he's gentle. He is so tender with the disciples here, Um. Now, the picture here, I think, that we can have in our minds is that just there's this long line of people. I mean, we're talking every aged kid imaginable, babies, toddlers, five-year-olds, 10-year-olds, possibly even some as old as 12. In the Greek, the word in Matthew that's used is paidos. It's a general term for children. It could describe someone as young as an infant or as old as a preteen, Interestingly, Luke says, now they were bringing even infants, brephos, different Greek word to him, that he might touch them. And it's almost as if to say, truly, there was no child too young for Jesus. He loved them all, each and every one of us. I mean, some of us, we have kind of a preferred age group. Let me just admit, like four-year-olds, five-year-olds, do we have any four or five-year-olds in here? My favorite age group right there. Independent and kind of take care of themselves, right? But still thinking you're the hero, right? Like very forgiving, can overlook a lot. Babies, especially if you're a guy, you see men around a baby, right? And they're like, I don't know what to do with this thing. And ladies will be like, hey, you want to hold it? And they're like, hmm, I'll pass, <laughs> right? But Jesus, he was, he was a guy that loved every age group. I just see him taking infants in his arm without fear. You would have thought he was a mother with the tenderness that he would hold a child. So much love for them. And that was true of every single age group. And, uh, you know, this was true, again, of, of, of the most youngest even among them. Jesus cared not how dependent or independent a child was. He cared not the level of their function or the form of their body. He loved each and every one of them. And the disciples are no doubt sincere in their intentions, right? I think we can understand they're trying to protect Jesus. Their actions are clearly wrong and completely out of bounds. And at this point, it's clear then that they still don't fully get Jesus, do they? Jesus loves children, even children. And since whatever Jesus loves, God loves, we can also say it like this, that God loves children. And I want you to just think about how this is expanding the disciples' understanding of Jesus. The fact is that the disciples have already learned a lot about the character of Jesus. They've learned a lot about his compassion. They have seen how he loves lepers, how he loves women, how he cares for Gentiles, Jews, centurions, servants, you name it. If you read through the gospel of Matthew, by the time you get to 19, chapter 19, you've seen Jesus care for people in all these different ways. And so he loves people regardless of their gender or their nationality or their social status or their physical and spiritual condition. But here we discover something else about Jesus. And what is that? That he also loves people no matter their stage of development. And what is a reason that he provides that he loves children? Look at verse 15. He says, For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want to explain this statement for a moment because keep in mind what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying that these children possess eternal life and are part of his covenant community. (laughs) Now, that might seem like an odd distinction to make, and you're thinking, Pastor, why would you even say that, right? But that's because, shockingly, This particular statement has become a significant proof text that babies should be baptized since they are part of God's covenant community, believe it or not. And in fact, one person has even said of this passage that when it comes to the debate of whether to baptize a child or not, that this passage settles the matter almost (laughs) single-handedly. The argument goes something like this, the fact that Jesus not only received the children of believers, but actually said that the kingdom of God belongs to them is clear evidence that he regarded them to be members of God's covenant community. In fact, in the words of John Murray, he says, If little children belong to the kingdom of God, if they belong to Christ, if they are to be received into the fellowship of believers, if they are to be reckoned as possessing the qualities and rights that constitute them members of the kingdom of God and of the church, is there any reason why they should not receive the sign of that baptism and of that membership? And the answer is yes, actually. And I would provide at least two reasons why one shouldn't baptize their child on the basis of this particular passage. First of all, we don't even know if these children were genuine believers, nor do we know if their parents were believers. We have no idea what the spiritual status is of those coming to Jesus. Um, the, the children weren't coming to Jesus because of their faith. Again, we don't again, we, do, we just don't know where the parents were either. But secondly, I'll also notice this: Jesus does not say that the kingdom of God belongs to these children but rather that the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. So the kingdom doesn't belong to these children themselves, but rather to any person who receives the kingdom like a child. And friends, this is no different than what Jesus has already taught about. If you back up in Matthew 18, I want you to look at verses 3 and 4. And you'll remember that there's this moment where the disciples are having this debate among themselves, and they're wondering, well, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, right? Well, and what does Jesus do in this moment? We're told how he calls to himself a child, and then he puts the child in the midst of him and the disciples. And then he says this, truly, I say to you, unless you turn... And become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so here we see that children are a lovely picture for us, aren't they? They are a glorious reminder that we need time and again of what it means to have salvation, of what is required. And what does it require? It requires that we entrust ourselves to Jesus Christ. And children don't kind of overly think things. They oftentimes don't even understand why they do things. But, you know, like I'm hanging out with my kids this last weekend, and we're at the lake, right? And my three-year-old daughter, Isla, is at the end of the dock, right? And I mean... She hardly even gives me a warning before she just launches herself off the dock, right? And what's going through her mind? I'm sure there were a number of things. But you know what wasn't going on in her mind? The thought that her dad might not catch her. That's just how a child acts. They just have this trust, this assurance. My parents are going to take care of me. Friends, that is the kind of surrender that we are called to as individuals, that we just forget about ourselves so much that we just surrender all to Jesus. We throw everything that we have before him. We depend on him for everything that we need, and we especially depend on him for everything that we need as it pertains to salvation. And that's necessary, absolutely necessary. Because what is the gospel? It's not what we are able to do for God, but what God has done for us. It's not a matter of changing our lives to become acceptable in his sight. It's to remember that we are accepted because Jesus is everything that we needed him to be, everything that we couldn't be, which led to him being a perfect sacrifice on the cross and one who can atone for our sins. So that's the explanation of this text. And now I want to do some applications. So the question we always want to ask after we study the Bible is this, how should this passage change my life? So what? So Jesus loves children, and we see that he blesses them. What does that mean for me? There could be a lot of application points I could give you this morning. We're going to zero in on two. Application point number one would be this. Jesus loves children, and so must we. Jesus loves children, and so must we. You have likely heard this little song. Jesus loves the little children. All the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. How many of you have heard that song before? It's one of those songs that's, I don't know, tough to get out of your head, isn't it? But it is a great reminder that uh, we benefit from, isn't it? Jesus does love all the children of the world. And friends, we as a church need to remember that and continue championing, championing that message Because here's what we see going on in the world around us. We live in a culture of death. We live in a culture that cares very little for children. Frankly, a a place where children are seen as burdens, perhaps even thieves, thieves of time, thieves of energy, money, hopes, dreams. Oftentimes, they are seen as obstacles, Obstacles to one's career, to one's success, to one's, and this is very big today, quality of life and so many other things. You might hear people say, well, you know, two to three kids, you know, that's a good number for you, but don't have any more than that. Otherwise, you know, how can you give them everything that they should have? When you actually ask what they should have, it's interesting how much that definition changes from one person to the next. What does it take to raise a child and what does God want us to do in caring for them? Does that mean we have to pay for their entire college? Hey, great if you can do that. Last time I checked, though, that wasn't a requirement according to Scripture. You have to make sure they're involved in every um, activity that there is in, in the school system. They have to be the greatest athlete in the world. Again, check your Bibles. I don't think you're going to find any of that mentioned. So sad to see how the view of children is today. But certainly how we view view children today is not anywhere near how God views them. From the moment that they are in the womb, the Bible is clear. They are a blessing. They are a blessing. And for this reason, I hope, friends, that you give yourselves to protecting life, to defending life, and heralding the value of every single life all the more. We are a pro-life church because we have a pro-life God. Every life a blessing. Second application I'd give you is this. The greatest way that we could possibly love children is when we bring them to Jesus. The greatest way that we could love children is when we bring them to Jesus. So again, think about these parents. They want their children to have a blessed life. So where did they go? They went directly to Jesus. And friends, let me just make it clear. That should be our number one priority today. Now, I understand that there are a lot of things out there in the world for our kids to be involved with. We might even call them good things. But the question every parent needs to ask is not what is a good thing, but what is the best thing? What is the greatest thing? And looking at a passage like this, it ought to simplify our priorities to realize that no matter what we might offer our children, if we don't offer them Jesus, then we are ultimately setting themselves, setting our kids up for failure. Only in Jesus is their true happiness. Only in Jesus is their true contentment. Only in Jesus is their true joy, true purpose, and of course, eternal life. And so I want to ask you this morning, parents, how are you doing at bringing your kids to Jesus? And if you say, well, you know, I try to get us to church every week. Here's what I'm going to say to you. That's not the same. I I didn't say, how are you doing at bringing them to church? I said, how are you doing at bringing them to Jesus? And there is a clear difference. Now, that's not to say that I think church attendance is unimportant. Indeed, far from it, I think it's vital. I think it's a vital part of your own spiritual health and the spiritual health of your family. But I can tell you this, I've met a lot of church kids that couldn't articulate the gospel at all, yet they showed up to every Bible camp, they were present at every VBS week. And so here's what I'm ultimately saying, how intentional are you at teaching your kids the gospel in the home? Are you having conversations with them about who God is, about what sin is, about who Jesus is, about what faith is. You can't assume these things with your kids. You can talk about all the statistics of kids walking away from the church at the end of the day as soon as they graduate from high school and having nothing more to do with it. Why? Why? But You have to wonder if at any point someone actually stopped to explain why the family did what it was doing. Why why even bother going to church? Can we just admit, like, there's a whole lot of things out there in the world that can be quite pleasurable, quite enjoyable. I mean, you ever just wonder, like, man, it'd be kind of nice to sleep in on a Sunday morning. The week gets awfully busy. Why go to church? Well, because there's a supernatural God who has called us into an eternal rest through Jesus Christ, and we get the opportunity, we get the privilege to meet with him. And so friends, I hope that you are taking time to talk about Jesus with your kids in the home. And of course, this has always been the number one priority for God's people. It's why going back even as far as Deuteronomy 6, what did God tell Israel? Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. times of sitting down and discussing the Bible together. It's not that it needs to happen on any sort of clock that somebody else comes up with. Oh, you've got to do that three times a week or four times a week or two times a week. The question is always the intentionality behind it. We live in North Dakota. we got the opportunity to drive a lot of places, a lot of windshield time. I mean, you take advantage of those moments to have a check-in with your child, what they're thinking about, what they're listening to. Just the other night, I was convicted. I did did a good thing, but I did a thing that convicted myself. Uh, So every night when we tuck our kids in, we usually just ask them two questions. We ask them first, what's your favorite part of the day? And then we ask them, what's the hardest part of your day? And, uh, And so... I just tucked my daughter, Sierra, in, and then I said, tell me, what were the God-thought moments of your day? And of course, she was very confused by the question, and rightly so, because I had never asked it before uh, at bedtime. I said, well, tell me, were there any times today that you actually prayed to God? Were you maybe asked him for help in some way? You just told them about what was going on. And I would never have known this if she didn't share it. Right, and I, I, If I hadn't asked the question, I wouldn't have learned this. But she said, yeah. I talked to God when I was upset with, with Caden earlier today, her older brother who's going to turn 14 in September. What we want to do is, in bringing our kids to Jesus, help them understand that there's a risen Lord who wants to be part of their every life. Day lives. Not just once a week does he want to be with them. He wants to be part of their comings and their goings, everywhere they go, everything they do, everything that they're part of. Jesus has something to say about it, and he wants to be brought into that. And ideally, husbands, let me just be clear, you should be leading this. Now, I trust that your wife is a godly woman. She might even know more about the Bible than you, but you are still called to lead your family. And in fact, I was given a reminder of this earlier in the week when I read a quote by John Bunyan where he spoke specifically about the father's need to be attentive to the evangelizing and discipling of his children. Listen to this. First, concerning the spiritual state of his family, He ought to be very diligent and cautious, doing his utmost both to increase faith where it is begun and to begin it where it is not. Therefore, he must diligently and frequently bring before his family the things of God from his holy word in accordance with what is suitable for each person. And then I love this last statement, and let no man question his authority from the word of God for such a practice. What do the rhythms of your home look like, dear friend? And how are you doing at leading your children closer to Jesus? And now let me just push this in a little bit because this can apply to the whole church. We are a family in the church. Nothing is, I can just tell you by experience, nothing ministers to my heart more than when I see other people coming alongside my own children and asking them questions about how their walk with Jesus is. We are not called to do this alone. We are called to do this as a family. And so sure, maybe you don't have kids of your own, but you have an incredible opportunity within the household of God to bring children to Jesus. And I hope you would take full advantage of that. Listen to Psalm 78. Listen to this. This is the pattern that we see again in the Old Testament. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. was not faithful to God. Friends, the next generation needs to hear about Jesus. You as a parent need to tell them. You as a friend need to tell them. You as a church need to tell them. You as a Christian need to tell them. Let's go to the Lord of Prayer. Gracious Lord, Lord, We thank you for your overwhelming compassion. We thank you that you have taken us and made us your children when we were extremely disobedient children. In fact, we were even worse than that. We were children of Satan. We were his offspring. We were willingly doing his will. And we were carrying out the lusts of our own hearts, Lord. And I pray that, Lord, you would help us to be so thankful for what you've done. Help us to hate sin this week. Help us to remember what it kept us from, most notably, a relationship with you. And I pray, Lord, give us the wisdom and the strength and the might to pass on your hope to the next generation. There would never be a single child in our family or in our church that does not know the love, compassion, and mercy of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.